My name's Fritz Hager. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new here, like new in the last couple of years, you've never seen me up here. Uh, for the last two years, I've been in Dallas four days a week going to school, and I'm down to two online classes and back in Tyler full-time, and so um, I am excited to be back. My wife is happy to have help bringing kids around the house, around town, um, but I am excited to be back up here on this stage getting to share the truth of God's Word. I tell you, but it is hot this week, and I've been studying Jonah all week. I actually said it's hot as Nineveh. Have you all ever said that? Probably not. I'm a pastor geek that way. But maybe that'll be our new catchphrase at Bethel. You know, that's how you'll know someone goes to Bethel if they just say, man, it is hot as Nineveh here. I was thinking about that, and I wondered, is that actually true? Maybe it is as hot here in Tyler, Texas as it is in Nineveh. Well, Nineveh doesn't exist, but Mosul, Iraq, it turns out, is forecast today to only be six degrees hotter than Tyler, Texas. So the real thing to say is we're almost as hot as Nineveh. But it doesn't make me feel any better that we're six degrees cooler than that sweat box. But the theme of chapter 3 of Jonah, where we are today, is not about how hot it is. That's actually covered next week in chapter 4. The theme of chapter 3 is about changing our minds. So just like they taught me in preaching class, I asked myself, self, what's a good personal example of me changing my mind? One that's funny, that would make people laugh, not this morning, but generally. And I couldn't think of a single example of me changing my mind. So apparently, my mind is made up on pretty much everything, and I'm not that funny, which you already knew. Seriously, I couldn't think about anything significant that I'd changed my mind on recently. How about you? When was the last time you changed your mind? Maybe it's only me, just too bad for my wife, but it turns out I'm not alone. We're not alone. Humans don't like to change their minds. Psychologists have studied this extensively. One study I saw broke people into two groups. One group was in favor of capital punishment. They thought that it deterred crime. Obviously, deterred it for the person who's dead, but also for other aspiring criminals. They found another group of people who felt equally as strongly that capital punishment had no effect on future crime. It had no deterring value whatsoever. And then they made up two completely fake studies, perfectly balanced. One that said, you're absolutely right, capital punishment deters crime. One that said, you're absolutely wrong, it has absolutely no effect. And they gave those studies to both groups. Both group read both studies. And what was the result? Both groups felt they were even more right after having read the conflicting studies. And it turns out there's actually a biological cause for that. When we process information that is consistent with our beliefs, we get little spurts of dopamine in our brains. We actually enjoy thinking that we're right. 
whether we're right or not. But we really don't need a study from Stanford to tell us that's true. People, we know us, we know people, we rarely admit we're wrong. We rarely change our mind, which makes today's passage even more amazing. Because it turns out, people actually can change their minds. You know, each year, the pastors, elders, and teachers at Bethel, we all affirm the belief statement. We go back through, we read it, and we say, yes, we haven't changed our mind about what Bethel believes, which that's a good thing. But what about when we, any of us, are wrong? Maybe we're wrong in business or economics or wrong at work or wrong in our marriages or wrong about parenting. If you have a teenager, you know you're wrong. Or maybe we think wrongly about God. Wrong about who he is, his nature, his power. Wrong about his plan or purposes. And when confronted with that truth, would we refuse to change our mind? So as we get into Jonah 3 today, I want to ask you the question, what is it that God would have you change your mind about? So turn with me to chapter 3 of Jonah, and we'll see three surprising changes of minds. First, that Jonah changes his mind, which leads the Ninevites to change their minds. And then something that might make us squirm a bit, it looks like maybe God changed his mind. Changing minds, Jonah, Nineveh, and God. So let's start with Jonah's mind. Look in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. It's almost the same exact way that chapter 1 begins. Two verbs, arise and go, paired together means uh, you need to go now. It commits a sense of urgency. Except this time we don't know exactly where Jonah is. When we left Jonah, he'd been vomited up by a large fish. We don't know exactly where the fish deposited him after roaming the sea for three days. Apparently, Jonah gets a second chance. And as Chad pointed out last week, it's not because Jonah in the belly of the fish confessed his sinfulness and repented. As Chad said, he has a long prayer in chapter 2 about himself. How bad he had it, how he almost died, and when he was close to death, God rescued him, answered his prayer to save him. So not exactly a clear statement of repentance or confession. So what did Jonah do with his second chance? The first part of verse 3 tells us, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. He arose, and instead of going away, as he did in chapter 1, he went to Nineveh. He obeyed the word of the Lord instead of doing the opposite. He changed his mind. Text doesn't tell us why. There's not much in the prayer in chapter 2 that gives us any clues. Chapter 4 seems to tell us that the reason he didn't want to go to Nineveh in the first place, he still feels the same way. That hasn't changed. 
Maybe he's afraid of another storm, another big fish, afraid of the consequences. Maybe he's grateful to God for being delivered. That'd be a good reason. Chapter 2 does mention a commitment to sacrifice and a vow that he makes. But we don't know what that vow was. Maybe it was to go to Nineveh. Maybe he kept his promise. But regardless, Jonah changed his mind and went to Nineveh. He didn't do anything to earn that second chance. Second chance is unmerited. Which is a good reminder for all of us. That as bad as we blow it, God can still use us. He's gracious And he has a great track record of using people who totally have blown it. Got the liars, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The murderer and adulterer, David. Good kings, bad kings. He uses them all. Peter, who denies the Lord three times and is restored. Paul, who makes a living killing Christians and putting them in prison, yet is used by God. So Jonah and us are in good company. So that's Jonah. He changed his mind. He got a second chance with God. What about Nineveh? The rest of verse 3 says, Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. God called Nineveh a great city in chapter 1, and now it's exceedingly great. The Hebrew literally says, a great city to God. Let me first tell you what a great city doesn't mean. This is not a morally great city. As Paul Tanner told us two weeks ago when he preached Jonah 1, the Ninevites, the Assyrians, were known for having no mercy on their enemies, impaling people while they're still alive on great poles, creating mountains of human skulls outside the gates. Nahum tells us that they killed babies just because they didn't want to care for them. Absolutely evil. So, This is not a great moral city. Could be a reference to the size, which fits the immediate context. Or it could mean it's a city full of gods, which would be true since the Ninevites worshipped many gods. Or it could mean it's important to God, important to His plans. Which is why some translations actually say Nineveh was an important city, which I think fits the rest of of the context of the book better. But it was certainly a large city, three days journey in breadth, three days to walk from one end to the other, which could be 60 to 75 miles. Now, we don't think the walled portion of Nineveh was that long, but we do think it could include the surrounding areas, kind of the suburbs of Nineveh, if you will. Or it could be figurative. It could be a way of saying, this is a really, really big city. Kind of like in Texas where we say you could drive for three days and still be in Texas. It's a way of saying this is a really big city. So what happens? Look at verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. A few observations about verse 4. First, Jonah only got started. One day out of a three-day journey. We don't know if this is because he's given it kind of half effort. Or it's the actual statement that he just got started. But this is the last time we hear from Jonah in this chapter. 
no evidence that he even finished his mission or that he proclaimed the message throughout the whole city. Next, look at the message itself that the Lord gave him. Forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's a tough message. Maybe there's more to the message. Maybe this is just a summary. But if there was, it's not in the text. I tell you, 40 days and you're going to die is not a message that gets a preacher invited back next Sunday. 40 days and it's over, you great city. It's not funny. It's not winsome. There's no hope. In fact, it's the opposite. But it was the message that God gave Jonah to preach, and he obediently preached it. He was a foreigner. They didn't know him. They had no reason to believe him. So we talked about earlier today, he hadn't earned the right to be heard by the Ninevites. He might have even looked a little freaky, having been partially digested by a fish for three days. And, and what does it mean to be overthrown? There's a little bit of ambiguity in the Hebrew. The normal usage of this term means to turn, overturn, change, transform, or turn back. But when you talk about a city being overthrown, it's like it's describing Sodom and Gomorrah. It means utterly destroyed, but then there's this weird, nerdy thing happen in the Hebrew verb that says, well, it also can mean to turn or to change. But it's still a tough message. And maybe Jonah's original audience, maybe they didn't know exactly whether that meant they were going to be totally wiped out or they were going to have a change of heart. But Jonah goes through and screams this out, at least through the first third of the city. I've got to confess, I'm not a big fan of this form of preaching, street preaching. That's personal opinion. That's not biblical. My experience personally is people don't like getting yelled at, me included. I once asked a guy who uh, is here in Tyler, who's a street preacher, and I said, has anyone ever stopped to engage you? Anyone ever asked you a question? Start a conversation. And he said, nope, never happened. But does that mean that God can't use the message of the street preacher? Or that maybe God used it in a way that my friend had no idea and never would know about this side of heaven? But look at verse 4, which should shock you. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The people of Nineveh believed God. The evil, ruthless, merciless, pagan idol worshipers believed God. These are the bad guys throughout most of the Old Testament, and yet here it says they believed God. What does that mean? They believed God like Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Same word. That kind of belief, saving belief. Or do they just believe 
that they would be destroyed in 40 days. What did they know to believe about God? Was only the message of Jonah what they knew? Let's look at the passage more closely. All we know about Jonah's message was, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. We don't know if he told them about Yahweh. We don't know if he told them about the true living God, the creator of all that is seen and unseen. We don't know that. We don't know if he made fun of their idols and how foolish it was to worship inanimate objects. We don't know if he gave a great personal testimony of how he was delivered from the great fish. Here's what we do know in the text. The word God here is Elohim. It's not Yahweh or not Adonai, the Lord or Master. It's a word that can be used to describe any of the false gods as well as the one true God. So maybe this isn't saving faith for the Ninevites. Maybe they just took this threat seriously. And unlike Genesis 15:6, with Abraham's belief where the Bible says it was counted to him as righteousness, here it doesn't say that there's that same effect. But before we too easily dismiss the faith or the belief of the Ninevites, Listen to what Jesus has to say about them. Jesus compares the generation of Israelites that he is ministering to, to the Ninevites who heard the message of Jonah. This is Jesus in Matthew 12, 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, Jesus doesn't say that the men of Nineveh are declared righteous or they'll pass through judgment. Just that their response, their repentance, their change of their pagan minds was so superior to the religious leaders of Jesus' day that they would condemn them too. So what explains this dramatic response of the Ninevites to a street preacher they didn't know? Think of all the times through Scripture that God's people who knew him ignored his warnings. And here, Jonah just gets started one-third of the way through the city, and the word spreads through the whole town. From greatest to the least, they all believed in God. Some of the doubters have speculated, well, maybe the the sailors from chapter 1, those guys who came to believe in Yahweh, maybe they got there first and they've kind of prepared the ground for Jonah. Or maybe it was the physical appearance of Jonah. The reports of other people who've been swallowed by fish and apparently you spend enough time in a fish's stomach and the acid or whatever turns your skin white and causes all your hair to fall out. So maybe they were shocked by this albino walking through them, and because he looked so freaky, they believed him. Maybe it was the testimony of Jonah. The Ninevites, their god was Dagon, the fish god. So maybe a guy who survived inside a fish and gets vomited up at the shore, maybe that's a guy they really want to listen to. Maybe. But I think the best explanation, the one that's actually in the text, 
is to not soften or expand Jonah's message. 40 days and you will be overthrown. It's not to add something to the text about other factors that may or may not have happened. The best explanation for why they believed is God. The message was the Lord's, was the word of the Lord. And interesting here, who did the Ninevites believe? They believed Jonah? No, the text says they believed God. Not the guy who jumped out of their fish God. Not the guy who was so winsome and expertly delivered a compelling message. They believed God. Jonah was faithful enough to deliver the message that God gave him. And God used that to turn around, to overthrow in a good way, an exceedingly great city, an important city to God, which should bring great comfort to preachers, especially ones like me, and to all of us who ever share the word of the Lord with others. You know, God helped me get this straight in my head uh, that it's about Him and His power and what He says and not me. Almost 15 years ago, when I was doing prison ministry in Huntsville, Texas, it's the first time I'd ever been in a prison, and it's the first time I'd ever done group evangelism. We went in at 6 in the morning and spent all day in that prison. And I'll be honest, it was one of the most discouraging and depressing days of my life. For starters, the food was awful. I mean, like, really bad. It was uh, the entree, sliced hot dogs. They were purple hot dogs. I've never eaten a purple hot dog until that day. Um, In beans, and the vegetable of the day, also beans. So a plate full of beans and a few purple pieces of hot dog rising through the ooze. But as bad as the food was, wasn't the worst part. When our team met for dinner that night, I realized we were keeping score. And I'm a competitive person. I don't like to lose. One guy would say, well, I led 10 men to the Lord today. Another would say, well, I led 20 to the Lord. Or I led five. And me, the guy who'd been in sales for 15 years, who'd practiced my pitch in front of the mirror like I was taught to do, had my gospel presentation down. What was my count all day long? Zero. Nothing. Nada. I was embarrassed. I was discouraged. I went back to the hotel and I prayed, Lord, please do that like, fish on the other side of the boat thing tomorrow and let me have full nets instead of zero. Woke up the next morning, went back. It was more of the same. And as the day was about to end, I'm thinking, how am I going to go back home and say, I spent the whole weekend sharing the gospel and nobody listened to me. And I was in a part of the prison where the prisoners are segregated. They're in individual cells. They're not in the big group pods and 
a correctional officer waved me over and he said, hey, there's a guy here who wants to talk to you. I'm like, oh, great. Finally, someone who wants to talk to me. And I walk up and I introduce myself and it's a, a young Hispanic man who speaks no English. I speak no Spanish. He speaks no English. I mean, I can order off of a menu and sound like I've lived in Texas my whole life, but I cannot converse with somebody in Spanish. But I had a Spanish track. It was a translation of the English track that I'd used for the last two days. The track was mostly a collection of Bible verses with some questions. And so I handed him his track and kind of pointed to it. And I would read in English and he would read in Spanish. And then... Because I couldn't ask him the question. He would ask himself the question, read the question. I don't know what his answer was. We would go to the next verse. And he learned the wages of sin is death. He learned that because God so loved the world, he sent his only son so that whosoever believes in him has eternal life. And I got to the point where I knew what it said in English, and I pointed that, and it was, says, do you believe these things? And he nodded and said, yeah, I, I, in Spanish, see, sí, I believe. And so I pointed him to the next part, which is the sinner's prayer in Spanish. And he read the sinner's prayer because he believed God, he had eternal life. He didn't believe me. He couldn't understand a word I was saying. Happened to be the person who delivered the word of the Lord to him that day. It's about what God can do with his word, not how good we are at delivering it. That should give us all great comfort. And I think one of the things it teaches us is that when we think about the Ninevites, I think one of the things we sometimes do is we think to ourselves that that person really is not likely to come to faith. They are so far from God, there's no way that is ever going to happen. And yet, what we see here is God can turn pagan hearts to Him. He can make people who are spiritually dead become alive. He can bring people from bondage to joy. So there's two things I want us to take from five. One is, as I said, we shouldn't be surprised by God when God does what only God can do. His message works for all kinds of people. And the second thing is, I think we make evangelism too complicated. This is a great story of Jonah showed up Shared the word of the Lord. It was that simple. Not because Jonah was awesome, but because God does the miraculous and the crazy part of the work. And that approach can work in our homes, it can work in our offices, it can work in prisons, and it can work in foreign countries. So let's go back to Nineveh. What happens next? Picking up in verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, 
covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. The Lord's message spreads through Jonah initially, but now throughout the whole city, all the way up to the king. He doesn't reject it. He doesn't make excuses. He responds the only way he knows how in humility. He takes off his kingly garments, garments and found the nearest ash heap. And he joins in. He throws his whole weight behind the response. He issues uh, a proclamation. The text is real, literally, he cries out. It has four components. One, everyone, man and beast, highest to lowest, will not eat or drink anything, which in Nineveh heat is dangerous. Everyone, both man and beast, will put on sackcloth, which if you think about it, is kind of a funny image. Dogs and cats in sackcloth running around Nineveh. But that's what the king ordered. Everyone, man and beast, everyone will call out mightily with great strength, to God. He wants them all to pray. And then lastly, he says, turn from your evil ways. So Jonah changed his mind, and we're not sure exactly why. Now the Ninevites changed their minds. They changed their ways. And, and why did they do that? If they just believe God's message that Nineveh will be destroyed, what's, what's the incentive why? Why would you pray and fast if tomorrow isn't going to come? We'll look at the at verse 9. The king says, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So whatever ambiguity existed in the term overthrow, we now know the king at least believes that they're going to die. Unless Elohim relents. Now maybe this isn't a paradox to the king who likely didn't know much about God. But it is for me. Because I believe when God says he's going to do something, he does it. And didn't the text just say he was going to do something? Clearly, 40 days you'll be overthrown. So that's what's going to happen, right? Well, the king had probably never read Numbers 23, 19, but I have. And that's when Balak spoke the word of the Lord saying, God is not a man that he should lie or son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will not fulfill it? God doesn't lie. He doesn't change his mind. Which is the same Hebrew word used here for relent in Jonah. So maybe the king is, is wrong about God. 
Jonah changed his mind, went to Nineveh, delivered the message. Ninevites changed their mind, turned from their evil ways, and now maybe it's God's turn. Let's look at verse 10 to see when the fire and brimstone rains down on these evil pagans. When God saw what they did, so here comes the mushroom cloud, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he'd do to them, and he did not do it. No destruction, no overthrowing. Kind of looks like God changed his mind. But if we look closer at Scripture, we'll see this isn't a one-time occurrence. It's part of God's nature. Maybe today we'd say it's a feature and not a bug. Scripture gives us better insight into God's character because God has relented many other times. He's changed his plans according to his purposes. Here are a few. Exodus 32. Israelites build the golden calf. And God says his wrath is going to burn down against them. And he's going to make a new people out of Moses. And Moses implores God to remember all his promises to Israel and to think about what the other people would say about him if that's what he did. And then Exodus 32, 14, and the Lord relented from the disaster that he'd spoken of bringing on his people. Same Hebrew word for relent as in Jonah. Amos 7 The prophet Amos saw a vision of a coming locust plague, one of several. And he said, oh Lord, please forgive. And Amos 7.3 says, the Lord relented. Same word. Jeremiah 15. Where it appears that there are even times, in this case, on the Lord's judgment of Judah, where he relented and relented, and relented, and relented, and finally executes judgment. And the text says, speaking as God, I am weary of relenting. So on the one hand, we have the sovereign God who's all-powerful, all-knowing, who is perfection, without defect or sin, He is unchanging, and as our Creator, He has the right to judge us at any moment. It's a God who keeps his promises, who does not lie and does not change his mind. And yet, he relents. Why does he relent? How does he relent? Because his perfect justice is also perfectly balanced by his mercy and compassion. Which should give us great comfort. In fact, to have compassion is actually an alternate meaning for the word relent here. The sovereign God of the universe knows how bad we blow it. He knows how the Ninevites blew it, how evil they were, how evil we were or are, hopefully not impaling people with sticks evil, but evil, greedy, deceitful, lustful, sinful, and yet he relents. He shows us mercy, 
and compassion. He's perfectly just and righteous, perfectly merciful and compassionate. So how does that work? Because the way I normally think about things isn't something that is less than perfectly just, which would be to ignore wrong, to ignore evil, even if you have good reason for it. Isn't that unjust? On the other hand, when God perfectly and rightly judges, isn't that unmerciful? So what do I mean that God's justice and mercy are perfectly balanced? By that I mean God's justice and mercy find their perfect balance in Jesus. The Son of God who was sent to the world because God loves us. Sent to the world because God has compassion on us. To pay the price for all of our sins, past, present, and future. To pay the just price, the wages of our sin, which is death. And even more miraculous than Jonah surviving in the belly of a whale for three days is the fact that Jesus laid in a tomb for three days, dead, and yet was raised to life so that whosoever believes in him shall have eternal life. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you need to change your mind about God, who is real and who has the right to judge. Or maybe you believe in God, but you need to change your mind about Jesus, who is a real man, son of God, who came to earth, paid the price for our sin. Or maybe you need to change your mind about yourself to recognize that you are so bad that you can't save yourself, that you need a Savior, someone who is perfectly good, who will vouch for you to the perfect God. All you have to do is ask Jesus to do that for you. Or maybe that's what you already believe. And you need to change your ways. You need to change your mind about something. Change your mind about someone. Or finally, maybe, maybe there's a person that God's put on your heart who you think to yourself, there's no way that person is ever going to believe in Jesus. Maybe you need to change your mind to be obedient, to share the word of the Lord with that person who is lost. And who knows, maybe God will relent. Let's pray. Father, we come to you, the true, just, and merciful God, in the name of your Son, Jesus, which is the only way that we could ever begin to approach you. We're grateful to you for sending your Son to earth to make a way that we could have peace with you. Thankful that you change hearts, that you open 
blind eyes. You bring the dead to life. Father, we don't do that. We confess that we are in desperate need of you to do that. First in ourselves, but then also in our friends and in our families and in our offices. Father, I pray if there are people here today who don't know you, I pray that you would do what you do and that they would not believe me, but they would believe your word. And that all of us, as we go through here, would approach your word with open eyes and open minds and be willing to be changed by it. Father, I pray that if there are those who your plan and purpose is for us to declare your word to them, Father, I pray that you give us eyes to see that. Help us. You prepare us, give us the courage and the strength to have maybe the awkward conversation, but know that the message is yours, it's not ours. I pray all of this in the name of Jesus and the power of your Spirit. Amen.